Well, Father, we, we come to you as grateful children, and we come as needy children, uh, needing your wisdom, needing your word. For as Peter said, to whom else shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. So would you speak to us, Lord? Communicate truth to our hearts in ways that change our attitudes, our responses to suffering, our responses to conflict, and so much else, Lord. Affect us by the gospel. And may we live gospel-shaped lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for coming. Uh, This is the last installment in the What is the Gospel series. And I think we've been served well these past few weeks by Pastor Peter and by Evan in giving us a clear understanding of what the gospel is. Obviously, we need to know, we need to have a basic understanding and grasp of the gospel, first and foremost, so that we can be saved. There's no way to even come into the fold of God, into Christian faith, apart from hearing the gospel. And so we need an understanding of it for that reason. But we, we need it in order to introduce others to Christ as well, so that we can in an informed way, present the Christian faith to them, the most important and essential matters that are needed for the Holy Spirit to work on their lives and regenerate their hearts through this message, which is God's power for salvation. But this morning, what we're going to look at is is another angle of the gospel, and that is the gospel is not something we leave behind the moment it brings us into Christian faith. It's not like the gospel's job is done once it's gotten us into the narrow gate into the household of faith. The gospel still has work to do. In fact, the gospel has just begun its work. And so it's in an ongoing way, the gospel is to be shaping us, informing us. Uh, The gospel message is fuel for holiness, fuel for obedience to God. The gospel, when it gets inside our bloodstream, it begins to affect the way that we relate to one another Uh, It it begins to affect our expectations of trials in this life and how we respond to those trials, how we respond to difficult people in our lives, how we respond to oncoming sin that we're battling with, what we do with that. And so we need and continue to need the gospel. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 12, we're just going to read a couple of verses. And then, uh, then we'll dive in. This will be familiar for many of us. What a sweet passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Follow along with me when you get there. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, in these couple of verses, which are well known to us, there is is one primary verb. There is one It's functioning as an imperative verb, and it is the verb run. That's the primary imperative verb in in this passage. 
run with endurance. And describing that run, there are two participles. We are supposed to run in a certain way, according to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We are to run laying aside every weight. So the whole of the Christian life is a race of endurance. The whole of the Christian life is a race that we run while we continually lay aside sin. Every time we see sin in our hearts, we repent and we lay it aside. So, which is to say, that the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. A life of continually mortifying sin. Not being comfortable with sin. Seeing it and laying it aside. Every weight and sin which would entangle us if we didn't immediately cut the straps and lay it aside. But there's another way that we're supposed to run in this passage. Another participle that says this is how you run with endurance for the rest of your Christian life. You run looking to Jesus. And that's what we're talking about this morning. What does it look like to run the Christian race for the rest of our days on this earth looking to Jesus, running, that is, with a gospel orientation? I don't know how many of you might have a treadmill. We just got a treadmill at the beginning of the year, and so it's like my New Year's resolution to run on my treadmill. And so uh, I need, at least at this stage of the game, I need external motivation keeping me going because I don't like running. I don't run well. When I run, I get shin splints. I don't run quickly. I run flat foot, and it's, it's not a pretty thing. Um, and so I need something driving me on. I need motivation coming from the outside. If I was just running down the street like some of the people that you see, I would quit so early. I need something saying, you've got to keep going. And what that is for me is my treadmill clock because I have this set time, and I can't tell you what it is because it's still embarrassingly short, but I have this set <laughs> period of time that I have to keep running, and I can't stop until that four minutes, there it is, until that four minutes is up. <laughs> yes, it's sad. And then I get to walk for two minutes to recover from what I did to myself the four minutes prior. And so I'm running, and, and that clock is driving me. That clock is yelling at me. It's saying, 45 seconds, keep running, and I'm gasping for air, <laughs> and my shins are killing me, and I've got a cramp in my side, and it says, 30 seconds, keep going. Only 15 more seconds, Matt. You've come three minutes and 45 seconds. Go, go, go. And then the four minutes comes and I hit the three and now I can walk three miles an hour for two minutes. And so I need that external motivation. God gives us external motivation in the race of the Christian faith. And he says, when you run for the rest of your lives, run with your eye on the gospel. Run with your eye on Jesus. Looking to Jesus let us run the race of Christian faith. And in other words, as we set our eyes on Jesus Christ, that's going to inform the way that we run. We don't run the Christian life and stop and start based on our aches and pains, based on what people do to us. We run looking at the cross, looking at Christ and responding in the way that the gospel dictates to respond. The gospel is supposed to drive us. And so we want to spend the rest of our time this morning really thinking uh, kind of devotionally, if you will, sort of devotional reflections on Hebrews chapter 12. What does it look like to internalize the gospel so that we run the Christian race looking to Christ? And really the way we're going to do this is by contrast, by asking the question, what does it look like if we don't look to Christ? as we run the Christian race? Are there, way, are there things in our lives that we can see 
growing and gathering and building if we're not looking to Jesus as we run the race. And the first danger that we fall into, failure to look to Christ, peril number one is self-righteousness. I think most self-righteous people don't think of ourselves as self-righteous. Um, and that's, I think the reason for that is we're simply thinking about other things. We're too busy thinking of our virtues to think of the fact that we're self-righteous. Self-righteous has this negative kind of feel to it. We're not going to stop and think about that. We're too busy cultivating the sense in which we're doing fairly well, at least in this season, right? We add some qualifiers. At least in this season of my life, uh, in areas that matter the most to me and in comparison with others, a carefully selected group of others. And so that allows self-righteousness to build and to grow in our hearts. How do we discern whether self-righteousness is on the rise, whether it's growing, whether it's, it's present in our hearts? I lifted this from uh, Jerry Bridges and Bob Bevington's book, the, the Bookends of the Christian Life, which is excellent. I put three resources, I think, in your outline at the end. You can consult those later on. And, so, and I tweaked a couple of them and added a few things. But here are some questions to diagnose and kind of to sniff out the presence of self-righteousness in our hearts. Do you tend to li- live by a list of do's and don'ts? Is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards aren't your standards? Do you feel you're better? We'd immediately say, no, no, I don't. Do you feel you're more spiritually mature than most people? We would probably quickly add, if we were on our A game of explaining this, we would quickly add, well, it's by grace that I'm more mature than most people. (laughs) Obviously, I can't do this by myself. It's not self-effort. It's, you know, it's just grace. I can't take credit for my spiritual maturity relative to other people's spiritual immaturity. It's God's grace. Do you, uh, has, it, has it been a long time since you identified a sin pattern and repented of it? No, it's not just a sin. It's a lot easier to confess a sin. It's a lot more difficult when after you've confessed that sin to say, and by the way, this characterizes me. This has gone on for a period of time. I think that this is not just something I struggled with yesterday, but actually when I look through the course of my life, I can see this repeated pattern of bitterness against people, repeated pattern of unforgiveness towards people, repeated pattern of giving in to bondage and lust and taking second looks. It's a repeated pattern. You need to know that as I confess this sin to you. That's going to tell us whether or not we're cultivating self-righteousness. Do you resent it when others point out your spiritual blind spots? or areas where you know you're not that impressive. We all know our own baggage. Doesn't it feel so different when you're, let's say you're sitting in a circle, doesn't it feel so different when everybody gets to confess their own sin versus when you say, hey, let's all bring some observations to this guy. And then they say the very same thing you would have said. Had you had the opportunity, you would have freely confessed that you're tempted with pride or judgmentalism. I would have confessed that, but it feels totally different for you to tell me, Matt, I think you're judgmental. Well, now now I got my back up for some reason. I think it has to do with my self-righteousness. Do you readily recognize the sins of others but not your own? Very keen on seeing what's going on in other people's hearts and seem to be almost obsessed and distracted by that. You find yourself thinking of other people's sin as though it's different than your own, maybe a little bit stinkier than your own version of of a perhaps different sin. Do you wonder why things aren't better in your life? There's another way to find self-righteousness. 
Because the functional belief, when I don't understand why things aren't better in my life, the functional belief that's going on in my heart is, if I were God and I looked at a life as pristinely holy as mine, I would bless me, left, right, and center. I would not bring any trials to this guy. Look how, look how well put together he is. Look how often he does his devotions. Look how much he prays. Look how much he reads the word. Look how much he serves. This guy is just gold. Right? Well, self-righteousness creates certain expectations from God and from the life that he gives to us in his providence. Do you get angry when difficulties and suffering come into your life? Do you seldom think of the cross? That is huge. How many of us repeatedly and constantly are thinking and drinking deeply from the old, old story, the message of the gospel of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for us. These questions, if we say yes to them, they expose, at every point that we're saying yes, they're exposing anti-gospel instincts in our hearts. Places where we're not going to respond with a, a thoroughgoing understanding that I've been saved, I'm a sinner, and I've been saved by a wonderfully merciful God. Contrary to what I deserve, he has saved me by mercy. Now, we may continue to struggle with self-righteousness, but in the gospel, we have a powerful check on the growth of self-righteousness in our hearts. Edmund Clowney said, and I've said, quoted this before, how can any man feel superior to others? How can any man boast of his own goodness when he is standing beside the cross? The cross, when we think of it, when we contemplate it personally, not simply theologically, abstractly, but when we contemplate it personally, Christ died for my sins. The natural thing that that creates is actually humility, not self-righteousness. It's actually when we see other people sinning, we say, I know what that's, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to struggle with sin. I know what it's like to need forgiveness, to need the grace of God to pick me back up and to send me on my way again. And so this first peril usually comes during seasons where we feel we're doing pretty well spiritually in, in the important categories, the most important categories that we would prioritize. The second peril comes when we are bumping into weakness, when we are stumbling in faith, when we're repeatedly feeling the frustration of I'm not performing well spiritually in categories that matter. I'm continually lashing out and anger against my children. I'm continually failing to go to the Lord and commune with him in prayers. I know I need it, but in my self-reliance, when I wake up in the morning, I think there's something more important to do than to depend on God. And so there's a repeated pattern of self-reliance. And so I see myself slamming into that, and that can lead to the second peril, failure to look to Christ, peril number two, guilt and spiritual burnout. Uh, John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress or Dangerous Journey? What a wonderful book. I would encourage all of you to get it. There's a version downstairs that has footnotes in the back that explains where all the allegories are. It's just a wonderful book. We're reading through it as a family right now, and what we've been trying to figure out is when does this guy get saved? Does he get saved when he goes through the narrow gate and he gets his ticket, he gets his his seal? Or does he get saved when the pack, the load, the burden falls off his back at the foot of the cross? And so we had different opinions in the 
family living room as we were talking about this. And we looked at the footnotes of these Bunyan scholars who have been reading Bunyan and reading a lot of his other materials to try to gather in what what does Bunyan believe about some of these things. And, and I believe that Bunyan, when he goes through the narrow gate, there's no way to come away with the thought that that's not biblical language for salvation. Entering into the fold, into the narrow gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. And this guy walked through the door, arrows were going past him and, and lodging themselves in the door, and then the gatekeeper comes and opens the door, and he comes in, and then he gets the seal that represents the promises of God to him that you have a home in the celestial city. And so he is saved when he goes through the narrow gate. And yet he still has this burden on his back, this massive weight. And he continues to walk around with that until someone comes to him and informs him of the beauty of the gospel in a way that now the burden, the guilt, the shame that he continued to carry around falls from his back at the foot of the cross, which is simply to say that we can come into a relationship with Christ and still not understand how glorious grace really is, how completely comprehensive it is to cover all of our sins so that even when we sin, we can run without shame, without guilt before a God who will not condemn us ever, will never cast us away, Jesus said. And we can run to him. We don't have to carry that burden of guilt and shame on our backs. And so the gospel, when it is internalized in our lives, it keeps us from cowering in fear. Now, how much in parenting, and many of, many of you our parents, have been parents and raised children, and some of you are still raising, some of us are still raising our children, would it break our hearts if our children did something wrong and they were afraid of us? They, they literally ran to their room and crouched down in the corner and turned away from us. And we came in and said, I know you did wrong, but buddy, why are you trembling? Why are you afraid of me? I'm your father. I'm not going to hurt you, I'm going to wound you. That, that's... that's It's a failure to appreciate the fullness of the grace of our Father when we tremble in fear and cower in the corner after we sin. And God says, no, I've been more merciful than you realize. Come to me. You sinned? Come to me. Internalize the gospel. Believe the gospel. We see our weakness. It's my experience. We see our weakness and sometimes we just want to quit. It would be less frustrating, wouldn't it? Less frustrating just to, just to stop trying so hard. You know, I'm tired of knocking my head against a wall and trying to get a prayer life consistent or trying to get life in the Word or trying to overcome my angry responses to other people or trying to overcome my bitterness and still facing it and still realizing I've spent the last two hours arguing with somebody in my head. I haven't even heard. I'm not hoping all things, believing all things, enduring all things. I'm assuming the worst about this person and I've been doing it for hours. What is up with me? And, and we're tempted to quit. Right? I've, I've experienced this in probably parenting more than any other category of my life, particularly when one kid hurts another kid. You know, and you hear it. You hear it happen in the back of the house that, that one kid says something mean. Kids can be so mean. We can be such cruel human beings. And you hear them say something biting, edgy, 
And then you hear the other one break into tears, comes running down the hall. She's crying or he's crying. And, and instantly in me, there's this reflexive rise of anger. This surge, it's building. I don't have to water it. It's just rising, rising. And, and my response, my fleshly response to cruelty from child to child is rhetorical sarcasm. And, I'll, and it's like it happens instinctively. I'm not saying, let me dig into the files of rhetorical sarcasm and draw some great one-liner. It just can just rise right out of the depths of my sinful heart. And I can pull the child aside into the room and I can say, what were you thinking when you said that? And then my, my rhetorical sarcasm turns on me. And, that, and I hear in the back of my head, it's as though, oh, that's a great question. That's going to help this situation. So let's see how that changes his heart. Wow, check this out. Because it really is a great way to remedy hostility between kids by ridiculing them with your sarcasm. Right? Sarcasm turns on me. And then I feel conviction. And then I go and I apologize and I say, son, I have forgotten the gospel. In that moment, I totally forgot about the cross. I forgot what Jesus did to forgive me of my sins. I forgot that I'm a great sinner and I need a greater savior. And I forgot that. Obviously, I would never have said that with that tone of voice if I remembered how merciful God has been to me. And I'll apologize and I'll ask forgiveness and he'll forgive me. And then I'll go in the back and these thoughts will just be playing in my mind. You know what? You've done this before, Matt. Why don't you just abdicate? Why don't you just give this all correction? You get home. Why don't you give over all the correction to your wife? Her wick doesn't seem as short as yours. Why don't you just do that? Do that. Why don't you quit? Hang it up. Give it to somebody else. You know, the gospel, the gospel comes running in at that moment. It says, you don't have to quit. I've got this robe of righteousness for you. It was, that robe was big enough to cover you when you were locked in the bondage to lust as a teenager, and it's still big enough to cover you in your angry lashing out at your children. You, you, you can be covered by the grace of God. Matt, and the gospel calls me, Matt, come to me. Confess your sin. Repent. Apologize. And move on. Keep walking. Keep working. Run the race looking to me. And, and we're called, notice what it said in Hebrews 12 was not just look to Christ and leave it there. It's look to Christ in particular, in a particular way. Look to Christ in his particular offices of looking to Jesus, the what? Author and finisher, founder and perfecter. Look to Jesus as the one who is sovereign in salvation, the one who initiated and began the work of grace in your heart and will see it through to the very end until the day that you see Christ and stand blameless in his presence. Jesus is a sovereign savior. And so in that moment, the sovereign savior comes to me and says, look to me, Matt, I brought you into the narrow gate and I'll bring you all the way to the end despite your sin. Matt, don't cower in shame. Don't quit continue to run. Raymond Ortland, this quote from him, stirs my heart. Last week at the meetings of the Gospel Coalition, one of the men pointed out that Romans 8.26 does not say, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. 
but singular weakness. Our problem is not just weaknesses. More profoundly, our problem is weakness. Weakness is not just one more experience alongside our other experiences. Weakness, listen to this, is the platform on which we have all our experiences. I feel the truth of that in my life. Weakness is a pervasive presence in all we are and do. It will not always be so, praise God. But for now it is. Every Sunday I am a weak man preaching to weak people. Admonition has its place. But weak, what weak people need more than admonition is help. Can anyone say amen? <laughs> we need help. <laughs> For weak people to live the Christian life in a way that is humane and sustainable, running with endurance, right? Rather than defeating and shaming, we need good news more than good challenge. Weak sinners continually reassured by grace will accomplish more for Christ than they would if continually confronted by demand. I am thankful that the Spirit meets us not in our strength, but in our weakness where alone His help enters in. And so, looking to Christ and internalizing the gospel enables us to strive, to fight, to serve, to love others, to lead in those contexts, despite our weakness. Failure to Christ, uh, failure to look to Christ, peril number three, loss of assurance. You know, for some, the peril that we just talked about actually goes further. It goes from a sense of guilt and shame before God and it begins to hack away at their very assurance of salvation. To begin to question whether or not they actually have experienced the grace of God. And that's because we're so busy looking at the circumstances of our lives, looking at my sin, looking at God's commands and his laws, listening to exhortations from scripture that we stop looking to Christ. We, we forget about the robe of righteousness We forget that we've been declared forgiven. We forget that Jesus says, I will not lose one of those whom I've brought to myself in faith. We forget about all that stuff and we're just locked in on sin and it drives us down further and further beyond merely feeling shame and feeling like I shouldn't sing this morning because I'm a hypocrite and moving further down and further down to saying, I don't don't know if I can even be a Christian. I'm not sure God would keep me. Robert Murray McShane said these famous words, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. There are people all around us here in in, in our church who struggle with assurance. Uh, maybe, Maybe some of them are you. Maybe you are one of those people who struggles with assurance wondering whether or not God is still going to be gracious to you this morning, wondering whether or not he will accept you when you come into his presence, wondering whether or not when you repent, is he going to roll his eyes in disbelief and in ridicule, or is he going to listen and forgive you? And, and, and these believers who battle with this particular danger, instead of taking 10 looks at Christ for every one look at themselves, they take 10 looks at self for every one look at Christ. And now, as you can, can understand, the cross seems so small. Because we're just looking at these. We've gotten so close to the heaps of our poor spiritual performance. And the cross is way back there, hundreds of yards away, and it just looks this big. And it's like, that is not bigger than this. There is no way that can overtake this. 
We forget about the glory of the gospel. These saints are happy to let Jesus have his title as faith's author, but they deny him his title as faith's finisher. That the one who said, I began it. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 1.6? He who has begun a good work in you, I'm confident of this very thing. He will perfect it. He will complete it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when they go to repent, they wonder again. They wonder if God is going to roll his eyes. And the gospel, what does the gospel say? If we're looking to Christ, if we're running with endurance, looking to Jesus, what does the gospel say in that moment? The gospel says, God never rolls his eyes at his children. God never does that. We might do that, but God doesn't do that. Don't project our own bad parenting (laughs) onto God. Believe his grace. Believe what the gospel says. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that if I'm inclined to repent, there's, there's a key. If I'm inclined to repent, I must be a believer. I want to turn away from sin and look to Jesus. That's what believers do, right? If I'm inclined to repent, what do you think God is doing in that moment? God is celebrating repentance. God is calling me to repentance. It's even better. God is the one who birthed that repentance. He is giving me the gift of repentance. He is is letting me smell the pigsty around me and bringing me to my senses. It was better in my father's house. That was God who did that. That wasn't me getting smart and realizing what a bad situation I had made of my life. That was God being merciful to me. And so when I'm inclined to repent, I should have every confidence. God will receive me. God will say, of course you're forgiven. Confess and forsake your sin. It is God who justifies, who can condemn. Read and reflect on Romans 8, 31 through 39. How much assurance is packed into that passage. If he didn't spare his own son, how will he not with him freely give you all things? It is God who is justified. Who can condemn? This is the words of a a merciful God. Well, sometimes our our failures to look to Christ actually end up contaminating our relationships with other believers as well. And that's, that's peril number four. Failure to look to Christ, peril number four, suspicion of other believers. I think another way that we neglect to internalize the gospel to look to Christ as we run the race is is by manifesting a, might say, a keen interest in the weaknesses and sins of other people. And this is very subtle. And this is, I, I find, it's hard to find words for this. It is incredibly destructive. And the reason it gets so much oxygen I think in part is because of the subtlety of the fact that when we think about that, we can immediately label that thought as discernment. That's God giving me discernment about what's going on in that other believer's heart. And what that does is it provides us a wide open field for exploring that thought further, right? You see how this can go. And then it ends up running like weeds through our minds. Next thing you know, we're practically obsessing over the sins of other people. Do we, do we really think that that's God's agenda for us to obsess over the sins and weaknesses and failures 
of other Christians. And I'm not even talking about the sin of gossip yet. No, that happens after this one. This happens first. I'm talking about the sin of not loving you in my thought life. Not hoping all things, believing all things, enduring all things in my thought life about you. Not protecting you in my thought life. If I walked down an alley and saw you getting beat up, I might feel bad enough to run in and try to help. But in my thought life, I am letting my thoughts beat you senseless. And I'm allowing that in the name of discernment. And so I think that this is particularly tempting, this peril, for older, more mature believers. Those who have been believers for a longer period of time. Those who have been a part of a church for a longer period of time, it goes, it escalates even more. Because for those of us who have been a part of this church for some time, we know other people, don't we? We have that kind of forbidden knowledge about some people here in the church. I don't know how we picked it up, but there it is. We picked it up and we know things about other people in the church. We know the ugliest stories that have come to Lakeview Christian Center. We know those stories. And so this is not gossip yet. It's just the weeds of unloving thoughts And many times, if we were truly discerning, we'd see these thoughts and we'd label them loveless, faithless, graceless, ruthless thoughts. And and here's the sad inconsistency, is I might be actively looking to Christ in my personal life, not living in guilt and shame, amazed by the grace of God to me as a sinner, Worshiping, hands extended, tears pouring down my face. What a wonderful Savior you are. Taking 10 looks at Christ for every one look at myself, but I'm not giving you those, I'm not giving you those 10 looks. No, in, in your case, I'm taking 10 looks at your sin for every one look at what Christ has done for your sin. In my case, I'm taking 10 looks at Christ for every one look at my sin, but in your case, I'm taking 10 looks at your sin for every one look at what Christ has done for that sin. Essentially, it's grace for me, law for you. I get grace, and the way that I tend to work that out is, you know, if you think about the situation, they're totally different, because my sin is isolated, and, uh, and by degree, it's not all that strong, and probably it was provoked by other people, <laughs> but your sin in this particular moment, here's what my thoughts are telling me, and I think they're discerning, I think they're true, my thoughts are telling me that your sin is not that way, no, your sin is calculated, your sin is intentional, mean-spirited, self-exalting, ugly, nasty, malicious. That's what was driving you, and I know it, right? This is not what the cross, this is not what the gospel leads us to think. This is not what it looks like to run the race looking to Christ day after day, internalizing the gospel. And these thoughts, if we don't thwart these thoughts in our minds with gospel truth, They will run, they will spread like gangrene and they will grow and then they'll grow to such a capacity in our heads that they've got to find a vent. You know where we all have a big vent? Yes, between your nose and your chin is a giant vent for what's happening in your mind. And so when your mind fills up with information about the sins of others, eventually you don't have the capacity to hold it. You're going to explode if you hold it, and so you open the vent, and out it comes, and now, no, now we got a whole different game on our hands, because we're not just 
not weeding the garden of our mind and our unloving thoughts toward others. No, now it's not just neglect of weeding. Now we're watering weeds. We are planting weeds throughout the church and we are, we are advancing greatly discord and disunity in the church, which is, according to the book of Proverbs, an abomination in God's eyes. God hates when we sow discord into the church. He hates it. We need to reckon with the gravity of this. When I think critical thoughts about other believers, here's what I need to realize. These thoughts are an insult to the cross. They are an insult to the grace of Jesus Christ. Because we in that moment are not looking to Christ as the author and the finisher of faith. He might be the author and finisher for me, but he's not the author and finisher for you. He can't get your faith done. He can't get your faith to the end. Your life is in shambles, and it's all your fault, and you are a stinky, nasty sinner. And Jesus is saying, but I'm a great Savior. Ah, No, he is stinky and ugly. We are insulting the sovereignty of the Savior. We need to realize that and be sobered by this. But when I look to Christ, not only for myself, but for others, I see that he is the author and finisher for me, and he is the author and the finisher for you as well. All right, the last peril brings us to the question of what comes to my mind first when I think of my relationship with God. You think of your relationship with God, what comes to mind first? Do you think of the kinds of things that Christians do? That this is what a changed life looks like. Or do we think, again, of the old, old story of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago to pay a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song amazing grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Is that what comes to your mind first when you think that's what it means to be a Christian? It means I sing that song and I sing it with everyone who repents and believes in Jesus and is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And they join me and they put their robe on. Christ puts the robe on them and we all stand in one choir processional singing the grace of God to the community around us and saying, come to the Lord of mercy. Receive the God of grace. Failure to look to Christ, peril number five, is grit over grace in the pursuit of holiness. Christianity can easily descend into rigorous duties. And the message that brought us in, the message of the grace of God in the gospel, becomes something that's past. And now we move on into the quote-unquote real issues of life. We move on into the real kind of on the ground. What does it look like? How do we change? What are we called to believe? What are we doing as the church? What's the mission? How do we share, right? Those are all great things, but we're not to move into those things forgetting these things. And actually, we're supposed to run the whole race and do all the mission looking to that, <laughs> looking to Christ, the author and the finisher, the sovereign savior, That is fuel for the Christian life. And when we fail to look to Christ, the Christian life begins to feel like it's being driven more by grit than by grace. Let's be really clear. Christians are called to obey God's commands. We know that, right? 
We're called to obey God's commands. Teach them, part of the Great Commission, teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. We're called to obey His command. We're called to believe truth. We're called to be holy, honest, diligent, faithful. We're called to put off all sin. We're called to avoid the appearance of evil. All those things are absolutely true. But the fuel for living obedient lives comes from the good news that we learned the first day we came to Christ. The fuel for that life is driven by the gospel. I think God's word presents a kind of gospel logic. And the New Testament writers often employ this gospel logic. They, they call us to things. They call us to aspects of holy living that are very clear. Right? Forgive one another. But they don't just leave the command naked and say, this is a moral imperative. Be good for goodness sake. Be good. No, they say, forgive others. Is that a good thing? Of course it's a good thing. Is that a thing that we're called to, commanded to? Yes. Forgive others. But it nests that command in gospel grace. Forgiving others as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. It grounds, it, it anchors that moral imperative in gospel grace so that it's not running by grit. It's looking at Jesus. Wow, what mercy I've been shown. Can I not, if that's internalized, if that's in my bloodstream, amazing grace is the song I sing every day of my life. Why, Lord, would you justify a sinner like me? If that's running through and coursing through my veins, can I not extend mercy to those around me who have sinned against me? It's anchored in in grace. So the logic of gospel-fueled holiness, I think, goes something like this. Those who love God delight to keep his commandments. Remember what Jesus said? If you love me, you're going to obey me. If there's love in your heart for me, there will be obedience. Think about that in the context of your relationships. Maybe you're married. It's love that drives the good things that go on in our marriages. That's why love is the fulfillment of the law. All of God's laws, all of God's commands can be summed up in this. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So, when I, am, when I sin against my wife in the context of marriage, I sin the moment my love for her is surpassed by my love for myself. The moment I love myself this much more than I love my wife, I sin. I either sin in my thoughts, I sin in my words, I sin in my actions, but I'm going to sin against my wife the moment my love for myself surpasses my love for my wife. In theory, if we loved God perfectly from the heart, with the kind of perfection that we will love God with in heaven, with the kind of perfection that Jesus loved his Father, if we love God perfect, perfectly from the heart for the next 10 days, guess how many times we'd sin in 10 days? Zero. Because obedience to the commands comes out of love for God. If you love me, you'll obey me. When we disobey, it's because in that moment, temporarily, whatever, we loved ourselves more than we loved Christ. So, in order to live holy lives... We need 
hearts full of love for Jesus. You see this? You see this logic here? In order to live a holy life, I need a heart full of love for Jesus. Well, that leads us to the next question. Where do we get love for God? How do we fill our hearts up afresh with love for God? How did love for God ever even begin in our hearts? First John tells us, we love him because what? Because he first loved us. His love birthed a response of love back to him. We saw mercy showering down on our lives and love leapt out of our hearts for this merciful God. And that continues to be the truth for our lives. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He also said, though, he who has been forgiven little loves little. So what's your sense? Do you feel like in today, you feel like you're a person who God didn't need to forgive very much sin in order to bring you to himself? Do we have the current sense in our hearts that God has forgiven me so much? If that's true, love for him will continue to come freshly springing forth from our hearts as we look at the gospel. We get love for God by contemplating his love for us. And where do we see God's love preeminently displayed? In the cross, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Really, this is almost a parallel to Hebrews 12. The life that I live, the race that I run, right? They're, They're parallel statements. The life that I now live, the race that we run, run with endurance. I live by faith in the Son of God looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher. I live by faith in the Son of God who did certain things. I look to Christ in certain offices. I look to Christ in Galatians as the one who loved me and gave himself for me. If you ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, what drives you into such, such a feverish and earnest pursuit of godly living and holiness? What drives that? Paul would say, he loves me. Christ loves me, and he gave himself for me. And he's he's the author of my faith, and he's the finisher of my faith. Love springs out of my heart because I've seen the most amazing love. And it breeds a kind of life. For Paul, it wasn't grace at the beginning and grit to the finish line. It was grace from beginning to end, all the way through. That's what we need the most. That's what the people that we love, the people we're mentoring, that's what our kids need the most. They don't need prescriptions for life. They need good news. They don't just need, though they need this, but they need more than God will do this in you as you cooperate with his grace. They need God has done this for you, period. Rejoice. He has done this for you, period, Rejoice. Michael Horton says, when it comes to our standing before God, we need a report, not a new resource. Knowing our purpose in life is a form of law. Everyone is born into this world as God's image bearer with a consciousness of being created for God's glory. However suppressed, it is an inescapable fact of our existence. When we hear that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, our conscience is pricked. We have fallen short of God's glory and our chief end seems more characteristically defined by enjoying ourselves, perhaps with God's help. 
We need to know our purpose in life. He's not begrudging that. We need to know our purpose in life, but we should be under no illusion that we are pulling it off. (laughs) At this point, the only message that qualifies as good news is that Christ has fulfilled it as our representative and has made us sharers in both his justification and resurrection life so that one day we will also share in his glory. Whenever we move from God's purpose for our lives to advice for how to fulfill it, we unwittingly go around Christ's cross to seize our own glory here and now. This is the danger inherent in taking the gospel for granted. As pastors and parishioners, it is easy to conclude that we need the gospel to be saved, but now we need to know how to live. No, the gospel makes us extroverts looking outside of ourselves to Christ in faith and to our neighbor in love. I'm convinced, and I'm convinced, I believe from Scripture, that internalizing the gospel, making this our favorite message, making this our favorite thing about the songs we sing, our favorite thing about the sermons we hear, our favorite things about giving counsel to others, is the fact that we get to share this gospel. We get to share good news of grace for sinners. And when we internalize that gospel, when we run the whole of our Christian lives looking to Christ as the author and finisher, it'll change everything. It'll begin to change the way we relate to one another. It'll change the way information spreads around this church. It'll begin to thwart unloving thoughts. It'll nip them in the bud so that the vent, when it opens, there's nothing but God's grace is present there. There are some concerns. We're working, we're talking, we're praying together, but grace is on the move, right? Because we're, we're faith-filled and we're trusting that the Savior is, is a sovereign Savior and he'll see his work through to the end. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We pray that your word and this gospel goodness would fill our hearts, that it would so course through us that when we're cut, we bleed good news. Oh, Lord, when we're offended, we bleed good news. When we see sins in others and we share and we talk to them about it, there is in the midst of that sharing, we are speaking the truth in love and we are speaking the truth in faith, knowing you're gonna get this person to the finish line because you are sovereign and you are faithful. Fill our hearts with good news. Make us a gracious people who stand in awe of a gracious God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.